Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Andrew Perry. Andrew Perry is Newton Investment Management's Head of Sustainable Investments. Newton Investment Management is an ESG investment affiliate of Bank of New York Mellon. Now our conversation today will focus in part on the prospects and roadmap for reaching net zero carbon emissions by the middle of the century, implications of shifting consumer preferences to the food industry, cyber attacks, and more. So, Amantia, Andrew, great to be with you both. Welcome to the podcast and looking forward to diving into these topics with you today. Happy to join, Dan. Thank you. Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, no shortage of topics to hit on during our time together today. So, Amantia, maybe we can begin with the fact that the International Energy Agency, or IEA, recently outlined their net zero 2050 roadmap. So, the conclusion is that this ambitious goal is achievable. However, there are some notable challenges. So, Amantia, can you walk us through what the path forward might look like to achieve net zero carbon emissions? by the middle of the century? Of course, Dan. And so it's right that the the report by the International Energy Agency, or the IEA, last month um, made this conclusion that you note, and it received significant attention and commentary. Um, the report did conclude that, 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 that it is possible for the world, for us collectively, to achieve this goal of net zero by uh, 2050, but also laid out a really ambitious and challenging roadmap for us to, to arrive to that goal. Now, taking a slight step back here, the reason why um, a lot of the conversation around net zero, around limiting uh, sort of uh, additional carbon emissions to the atmosphere is pegged around the year 2050 is uh, because uh, it's based on the recommendations uh, of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC, which in a variety of studies and reports has concluded that uh, in order to limit uh, global emission, uh, excuse me, global warming beyond an additional average of one and a half degrees Celsius, um, the, it would be necessary for us to collectively limit global level emissions to to about net zero within the middle of the century. So that is the starting point of a lot of this analysis that IEA and others have conducted. Now, coming back to the report, um, their conclusions were that to achieve this goal and, you know, inter- uh, very importantly, not just to meet the, the kind of the final goal of 2050, but to also meet the critical intermediate milestones that are required to be achieved by the, in the next decade, by 2030, um, there, there, uh, we needed a series of um, changes ranging from behavioral changes to further scaling existing technologies, and importantly, we would need the development of new technology as well. So some key highlights um, from the report included calling for governments in particular to stop funding any new fossil fuel projects. And and I think in addition to governments, I think the call is just broadly uh, across sectors. Um, The report also called for um, adding the capacity that can be covered by renewable energy by by 4x 
just in this decade and also called for additional investment uh, to help scale and, and uh, you know, make fit for purpose technologies such as hydrogen, biofuels or carbon capture technologies as a way of, again, um, using all of these different tools in the toolbox to reach this goal. Now, these demands are formidable and we really cannot underestimate the, the, the challenges that uh, trying to meet this goal really presents, both for us collectively as, as a globe, but also for any individual country and individual government and really any individual uh, company for the most part that, that sets this objective for themselves. Um, fossil fuels currently represent about 80% of global energy consumption. And so the transition to net zero will require changes to both energy supply, but also to energy demand potentially. Now, uh, we are seeing some market developments that are pointing to ways in which consumers, investors, and governments are really starting to lean in to try to look for solutions to these challenges. And uh, we saw just a couple of weeks ago the very widely covered um, events that happened during the shareholder meetings of ExxonMobil as well as Chevron, two oil super majors, which saw... Uh, their shareholders vote in favor of, in essence case, changing uh, two of its directors with uh, with individuals who were um, keen on, on positioning Exxon towards this, this energy transition, as well as uh, Chevron shareholders voted to require the company to come up with a plan to further limit its own greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions uh, compared to sort of what it's already trying to do. So there is some positive momentum in, in that in that area that points to the fact that uh, you know additional opportunities are being created additional capital is likely to flow towards these new green technologies that we need to develop as well as you know is creating opportunities for green finance um, in particular for green bonds as well so all of these are good good points, good uh, news for investors. However, um, it is important for us to all be clear-eyed about the magnitude of this challenge as we consider it. Amantia, it sounds like there are indeed a lot of moving parts. A lot needs to fall into place. However, there does appear that there is a path forward. And to Amantia's point, Andrew, green technologies clearly will play a key role in order for this ambitious goal to be achieved by the middle of the century. So, Andrew, from your vantage point, what are some longer-term themes within green tech that present opportunities for investors today? Well, it's a sort of thematic stock picker. This is a, a fantastic environment. You know, we've got these, these significant disruptions, these emerging trends, and they're, they're happening in scale. It's literally going to be trillions of dollars that are going to be spent on the movement towards next zero around the world over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So, so it does represent a very significant investment opportunity. The most obvious is in the renewable energy, you know, clean energy uh, revolution that's happening. You know, renewable energy in most countries now is more competitive than fossil fuels. So economics are beginning to speak. This is about good business not just about greening the planet. But don't just focus on renewable energy. You know, to distribute that energy, we need smart grids. To have smart grids, we're going to need new wiring and copper cabling so we can have new interconnectors. 
I think in the area of electric vehicles, we're already seeing an accelerating adoption. You know, the iconic F-150 is going electric and the, you know, the Ford Mustang is going electric. So that's going to really spur material science. So battery efficiency, I think, in the next five years is going to transform out of sight. So that's going to accelerate the development. I think we're going to see lots of areas in the sort of smaller picks and shovels, if you like, of the green energy revolution. So it's going to be everything from biological uh, elements like enzymes, you know, uh, washing detergents have fossil fuels in them. And some of the, the food manufacturers and consumer product companies are trying to take fossil fuels out of those by the use of enzymes, which naturally break down in the... In, in the environment. We've got even the food system as well. That's, you know, a big emitter of carbon. So we're beginning to see, um, you know, changes there, whether it's in precision ag- agriculture, ac- aquaculture, or um, or um, around vertical farming and areas like that. So there's so many really interesting areas. And it's not just the green solutions. It's also how it then transforms heavy industry. And if you think about a falling cost of renewable energy that could accelerate over the next decade, then that's going to be great news for the decarbonisation of industries like steel, cement, uh, uh, shipping, etc., which at the moment are really hard to decarbonise. But once we get green hydrogen, not the blue, because that's still quite dirty, once we get green hydrogen, then that's going to transform the economics of many uh, industries, as well as ultimate goal of democratizing energy uh, for for people, because access to low cost energy will transform life in the uh, in the poorer countries of the world. Well, Andrew, it is fascinating to think about the scope of implications across a variety of industries and sectors. Though it's clear that this story will remain with us for quite some time. It uh, sounds like there's a lot of opportunities out there, though. This is something we'll continue to keep a close eye on over the years to come. So maybe at this point we can shift gears a bit, talk about our next focus topic. So I know Amantia shifting consumer preferences. They've yielded some notable changes over the past few years within the food industry. What have those notable changes consisted of Amantia and how might the food industry continue to adapt and evolve in the years to come to keep up with these shifting consumer preferences? So it's funny that, I mean, it, in some ways we're shifting gears here with a second question, but, but in many other ways we're not, right? Because Andrew just mentioned that um, agriculture is an important part of uh, our, our systems that will need to change and adapt as we're looking to achieving these net zero objectives. And so that's a big part of this equation. Now, what we've seen is that uh, we've seen a few different trends kind of come together that are pointing to ways in which agriculture and our food system more broadly is already changing and will continue to, to change. So one of these changes is, um, as you point out, the, the fact that consumers are starting to shift their preferences. And in particular, we've seen uh, young, younger consumers, the so millennials and the Gen Z uh, generation, uh, show a, a increased taste and preference for plant-based alternatives uh, to, to regular protein. And, and this has then created opportunities 
for for the companies that are providing these solutions. Um, the IPO of Oatly this May was just one example of many such products as they're starting to find their place in the market. Uh, and we think that um, the, the plant-based protein uh, market will have the opportunity to grow by about 28% uh, on average over the next decade. Now, in addition to this taste for plant-based food, uh, we're also, you know, we know that millennials and Gen Z are, are digital natives. And as such, you know, as they start to make up a growing portion of the consumer economy, um, as their income levels rise, we think that this will also continue to support demand for digital marketplaces that will serve them and sort of meet their preferences. And so, again, there we think that food delivery, for example, will will start to be part of the, the way that we're transforming, uh, at least in some parts of the world, uh, the way that, that food is 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 delivered and consumed. And uh, for the food delivery market, we think that the opportunities for uh, growth are at around 16% on average, um, again, over the next decade. Now, you know, I'm, I'm talking about consumer preferences here and plant-based foods, but, but this is very much not the only way that we'll need to and we'll be able to reduce emissions in the broad food supply chain. Um, in fact, Overall, as populations are, are, are population levels are increasing in the world, uh, and as levels of income are increasing in um, emerging market economies, we think that potentially global meat consumption overall will continue to increase, and so will uh, the need for more food. Um, so here is where we're we're seeing sort of a challenge and an opportunity for a whole new set of tools to come to market to help to meet this increasing demand in a sustainable way. So in a way that also kind of tackles these twin opportunities and challenges that we have, both food uh, demand increasing as well as climate change. And some of these tools, uh, I would agree with, with what Andrew mentioned earlier, we'll see opportunities around precision ag in particular, as he mentioned. We think that irrigation technologies also will be important when it comes to, to water utilization as well, as well as to helping uh food systems and farmers be able to find efficiencies in food production. And then finally, you know, combination of drones, sensor, technology, satellites are also largely uh, likely to be adopted um, as, as the agricultural system transforms to help to address some of these challenges and, and meet these opportunities. Amantia, from the sounds of it, there seems to be a lot of opportunities here for investment spanning everything from supply chain to agriculture. So, Andrew, what kind of growth might we see across these areas and how should investors think about positioning in order to take advantage of these trends? Well, as Amantia mentioned, you know, one of the big uh, drivers behind this trend is rising world population. So if you think by 2050, there's potentially 2 billion more people who are going to be on the planet. They're all going to have to eat. So we've got this population expansion that is going to continue. That means it's going to be a structural driver, which suggests that the demand for food is going to be above you know, GDP growth. So that makes me, me feel optimistic that this is an area that uh, we should be tapped into. It's been as part of that approach to looking at the world through these emerging structural themes as the determining where to find ideas. Now, again, a point that Amanto made was that you have to look at the the whole 
value chain of food production because at different times you're going to get different parts of the value chain accruing the, the best opportunities. So whether it be you know the the, the the farming end, you know how we actually more efficiently produce our food. So even their animal health um, is going to be uh, a part of that. While we still continue, we will be continuing to eat meat around organics and healthy eating and biological nutrients. I think are going to be a really fascinating. Uh, but also then the the, you know, the manufacturing and distributions uh, are going to provide uh, enormous opportunities. But then right at the front end, at the consumer end, there, there are other opportunities in allied areas like the circular economy through the reduction uh, of, of food waste. We've done a great job in the UK, um, something like a 50% reduction in food waste. And it's an amazing amount of food that you can save if you put your mind to it. And that obviously, if you're a company... What's, you know, that's margin. So, you know, again, the point I made about the, the energy transition, the transition in the food does bring a lot of economic benefits. This is about good business practice, good economics, and tapping into some really, you know, absolutely fascinating cycles, including the other byproduct of food is waste. You know, waste management is one of those areas that is going to continue to be an issue um, uh, particularly with growing populations in there, we are going to have to make sure that we don't put in pressure on the environment in which we live uh, through our consumption uh, patterns. So waste management and pollution management are also going to be very enduring above GDP trends in the future. Well, the reduction of food waste is indeed a bright spot. So thank you, Andrew, for walking us through some of those trends. Another trend that we can spend some time on, and this is an unfortunate trend. I know in recent months, Amantia, we have experienced uh, several instances of cyber attacks or data breaches that have revealed just how vulnerable government agencies, a sensitive infrastructure, I think about the Colonial Pipeline just about a month ago, and even private enterprise, how vulnerable these components are. So can you quantify, Amantia, for us the economic toll and speak to the sustainability-linked implications here. Yeah, it, I, I mean, it seems that uh, 2021 has been almost characterized by by a series of, or almost like a sprinkling of these higher-profile um, cyber attacks or data leaks that have affected lots of countries in the world. But in particular, you mentioned then the Colonial Pipeline system uh, ransomware, which was widely covered by the media, but also, uh, you know, this, we've seen so many of these examples which have been perhaps as high profile like uh, the ransomware attack on JBS, which is one of the largest global meat processors, or even the New York uh, MTA here, the Transportation uh, Authority in New York City, um, where that in April, according to reporting, was also subject to to a major data hack, which unfortunately fortunately did not have any significant impact on on ridership or or security, but also exposed some vulnerabilities there. And as you say, I mean, the economic toll of these events can be significant. Um, according to a report by the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors. Um, in 2016, so five years ago already, the cost of the U.S. economy was uh, estimated by them to range between 57 to 109 billion U.S. dollars. And I would expect this number to potentially have uh, increased on average today, given the increased frequency of these breaches, as well as the further digitalization that we've seen over the last few years. 
um, IBM also um, in, in one of their reports on the cost of a data breach uh, in 2020 estimated that the average global cost of a breach for, for a company um, sort of on average globally would be uh, around $3.9 million for a single company. And, and for a U.S.-based company, uh, their estimate pegs it at around $8.6 million. Um, and so, you know, if you think of these numbers in the aggregate, the toll can start to increase and really points to the fact that data security, cyber protection, data privacy are financially material issues that really span across sectors. And, and, they're, and they're also issues which are likely to increase in importance and visibility as our economies continue to digitalize. So, you know, beyond being financially relevant, financially material, these issues are also important sustainability issues. And one thing that I, I found often surprises people is to know that uh, when we talk about environmental, social, and governance, or ESG frameworks, um, often these topics around uh, customer data protection, data privacy, data security, are covered and, and captured within that social pillar of um, of these ESG frameworks, they're very much part and parcel of the understanding that um, you know sustainable investing kind of broadens the the the, the what financial analysis looks at to consider impacts on stakeholders such as consumers, uh, primarily in this case. Um, and also many reporting frameworks now require, you know, suggest to companies to start to report and provide transparency to investors in how they are prepared for uh, for this changing economy and for these risks and, and how are they building consumer trust as well uh, as a result of their policies. That, that they have, you know, to protect against these issues. Um, in addition, you know, as, as we're seeing an increased prevalence of data breaches, we, we think that um, there are also opportunities if you take a thematic lens here and you look, uh, because we think there will be increased demand for solutions and technologies that will help uh, large corporates and, and governments basically um you know, protect themselves and insulate from these risks. So we think that um, there's a significant potential addressable market in, in around the topics of security and, and safety, and, and we expect this to market to reach um, over, you know, $737 billion by next year and continue to climb uh, in, in future years. So uh, very much we see significant opportunity there um, as, as these issues issues are both financially material and also, you know, material to us in, in society and important sustainability issues. Amantia, to your point, it seems evident that cyber attacks pose all kinds of threats, including to air, water, soil quality, uh, the global food chain, the list goes on. So, Andrew, from an investor's perspective, what quality should they look for in companies that are best prepared to handle or even mitigate these threats? Well, Amantia actually mentioned ESG in there, and I often think that you know, ESG got the, uh, you know, the, the the word order wrong. Is it really? And it's brought out by cybersecurity. Governance is a very important enabler in all of this. You know, governance, good governance, is the route to good environmental outcomes and good social outcomes. You know, it's how companies manage risks as well as opportunities. And cyber attacks are are an enormous. Uh, 
risk and, you know, they're one of the biggest strategic issues uh, that companies face. You know, the World Economic Forum talked about, I think, $5.2 trillion of global value being at risk from cyber attacks over four years to the end of 2023. So this is a big problem. And I think for us, we, we tackle it through through governance. You know, a big element of what we do as an investment manager is in around engagement. And one of our seven engagement priorities for 2021 is cyber security. And, and, and really, we do look at it through the lens of, of governance because a lot of it is about the discipline of companies to to really understand, you know, how they manage that, you know, the balance if you like, between the need for digitalization with cyber risk, because, you know, the move to being more technology enabled brings efficiencies, but it also exposes corporations to risk. So, so we want to try and get their, understand their mindset and their processes around that. Uh, very important, therefore, to have really robust risk management processes, something that both Newton and BMY Mellon and UBS will, will understand. And, and then it's trying to understand the frequency and severity of data breaches and security issues and how they're handling it. Now, we often find that poorly governed companies are the ones that are most vulnerable to, to data breaches. And this is both true in, in the public and in the private market. You know, if companies are focusing aggressively on the short-term management of costs and not looking to, to invest for the long term, that's often a, a warning sign that they're, they're taking inadequate protection against uh, cyber attacks. So, you know, I often think that governance is the route to great innovation. And it's really important uh, that you look for companies that are investing in future relevancy through producing sustainable financial returns and having products that people want to buy and buy, but also to build in uh, resilience as well. And companies that you know, focus too much on the short term and the maximization of short term cash earnings over long term investment are often some of the ones that are the most vulnerable, and which is why it's, you know, that would be an engagement point for us to understand better how they're balancing their priorities. Andrew Amantia, it was great catching up with you both on the podcast. A lot of timely, relevant topics we covered and a lot of actionable insights as well for our clients listening in that they can discuss and have follow-up conversations with their financial advisors. So thank you again for joining us on the UBS Conversations podcast channel and hopefully we can catch up at some point soon. It's been a real pleasure. Again, today we have been joined by Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Andrew Perry, Newton Investment Management's Head of Sustainable Investments. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, as well as portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the most recent edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topics or receive a copy of the publication directly. Sustainable Investing Perspectives is part of the UBS Conversations podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit 
UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.